Welcome everyone to the Predictably Treacherous Podcast, coming at you at the beginning of Wave 2 of the Corona Apocalypse. Today we'll be looking at the films of Brandon Lee. So Brandon Lee was the son of martial artist and actor Bruce Lee and Linda Lee Cadwell. He was born February 1st, 1965 in Oakland, California. He was in five films before his death on March 31st, 1993, while filming his final film, The Crow. So first there was Legacy of Rage, 1986, Laser Mission, 1989, Showdown in Little Tokyo, 1991, Rapid Fire, 1992, and The Crow, which was filmed in 1993 and released in 1994 after his death. So first film we're going to talk about here is Legacy of Rage, 1986. This one was um, directed by Ronnie Yu, and it starred Brandon Lee in his first uh, starring role, and Michael Wong. Um, this one was distributed by D&B Films Company Limited, Release date was December 20th, 1986. Uh, no idea what the budget was. 86 minutes. That's for the uh, the version I watched. And it was uh, dubbed into English. Here's a plot summary from Wikipedia. So Brandon Ma, which is Brandon Lee, is a regular guy with a job and a girlfriend, May Regina Kent. He has two jobs so he can support his girlfriend and his dream of owning a motorcycle. Brandon's best friend is Michael Wan, so that's Michael Wong, an ambitious and murderous drug dealer. Michael also loves May, and so he comes up with a plan using a corrupt police officer named Sharky, played by Lam Chung, that will win her for himself and get Brandon out of his way. It seems that the corrupt cop has been using his police connections to dominate the local cocaine trade. So Michael has him killed and uses Brandon as the fall guy. Brandon goes to jail and meets Hoy, played by Mang Hoy. Although he thinks that he will be released soon, thanks to the efforts of his good old buddy Michael. However, after eight long years, Brandon finally gets out of jail and vows revenge on Michael for betraying their friendship and stealing the love of his life. Whilst out of prison, he learns that May has had a son. With the help of Hoy, Brandon tracks down Michael. Whilst engaging his guards, he learns that May is dead. After killing Michael's guards, Brandon confronts and kills his former friend Michael. The movie ends with Brandon bidding farewell to his friend Hoy, who aided him in fighting Michael's guards and leaving with his son. So that's it from the old Wikipedia plot summary. These things are a blessing and a curse. It's nice to have just a, a fairly thorough plot summary to reference so that I don't have to just go through and write everything in my own words. It's a bit of a pain in the ass, to be honest. But sometimes uh, the plot summaries can be a little wordy unnecessarily. And in this one, someone had a real fondness for the word whilst and used it several times, way too many. All right, that's just me being lazy, though. So um, I noticed at the beginning of this one that the executive producer in the credits that are rolling at the beginning, the executive producer, his name is Dixon Poon. And um, 
that's fine. It's legitimate, but it just almost seems fake. Uh, it almost seems like a fake name. And it kind of reminded me of that. Um, I don't know if anyone saw that prank that was played on newscasters. Apparently it was at KTVU. It's a Fox affiliate in San Francisco. Um, and what happened was someone played a prank on them. There was a plane crash uh, in China, or at least there were Chinese pilots aboard. And um, so someone put in fake names for the pilots. Um, I put a link in the show notes here. I'm not going to play the audio from it. It's it's almost it's hilarious, but it's kind of in poor taste. So I'm not going to go out of my way to be a jerk about it. But needless to say, someone played some pranks with the names of the pilots and they were read on air and it just it sounds outrageous when you hear it all right i'm gonna play it so hold on we have new information now also on the plane crash ktvu has just learned the names of the four pilots who were on board the flight they are captain sum ting wong we too low ho li fook and bang ding ow the NTSB has confirmed these are the names of the pilots on board Flight 214 when it crashed. We are working to determine exactly what roles each of them played during the landing on Saturday. So I, I guess why I'm playing this, even though it's in terrible taste, is it's just kind of to illustrate the, the point that, look, um, the newscasters are so white, Christian, Republican, they're so ignorant of people who are not white Christian Republican that it seemed plausible to them that these could actually be the real names of the pilots. Um, and they didn't like I, I when you're hearing her read it um, and hearing those names, I mean, right away, you're like, that can't be their names. That's a prank. But they just kept going like, hmm, no problem. That, that seems totally legit. OK, so let's get to the film if we can. So in this one, the opening 10 minutes was a really good intro into what each of the characters was about. Um, you get a good sense of what uh, Michael is about. He's the drug dealing guy. Um, he's being groomed to take over as kingpin of his father's illegal drug business. And um, he ruthlessly kills like a carrier, a drug carrier. Uh, and he's sitting in a limo, like watching cartoons. So he's kind of juvenile, but he's got a lot of power and he's kind of ruthless. So that just about sums him up pretty well. Um, Brandon was his name, Brandon, in the film. I think it was, um, he's in love with May. He's just a hardworking guy. He's a good guy. Um, and May is like this girl who just wants to be with Brandon and, um, Brandon's very simple. He wants a motorbike. I don't know if that was in the first 10 minutes, but anyways, they're simple people. They just work hard in a restaurant and that's it. Now, it seems to me that one of the major themes of the movie is uh, betrayal and revenge. And the film is more complex and more subtle than the Wikipedia plot summary gives it credit for. So, as I said before, Michael is being groomed to take over as kingpin of his father's illegal drug business. His father wants him to kill longtime business partner and corrupt cop, Sharky, who has outlived his usefulness. So, simultaneously, Michael also wants May, uh, the girlfriend of his longtime buddy, Brandon. So, he figures out a scheme to kill Sharky and frame Brandon for it, killing two birds with one stone. So for Michael, 
it's not just that he wants May. He also wants to take her away from Brandon. See, in one scene, Michael flashes back to when he and Brandon first met May. It was in some fast food restaurant May was working in. So Michael tried to ask May out, but was rejected. And she chose Brandon over him. So Michael was emasculated. And this scheme to kill Sharky while framing Brandon and stealing May may allow Michael to redeem himself in his own eyes. So the first part of the plan works when Sharky is killed and Brandon is sent to prison. But when Michael moves in on May, she rejects him. So then he tries to rape her and then to kill her. And she flees Hong Kong to marry an old man admirer of hers. So after Brandon gets out of prison, he tries to go on with his life, but he encounters Michael through his job at a gas station. So Brandon treats Michael like a stranger because he just wants to move on from the past. But Michael can't let it go. He needs to redeem himself. So he has May and Brandon's son kidnapped so as to lure Brandon into a final showdown. So Brandon and his prison friend, Four Eyes, mount an attack on Michael in the final action sequence of the film. It's notable as well that there's also a cameo appearance in this film, and it's a great scene, by Bolo Young, who is... Um, my generation probably knows from Bloodsport as Chung Lee, but he was also in Enter the Dragon, which was Bruce Lee, Brandon Lee's father's final film. Not a good sign when you see a movie listed on a Mill Creek collection. Um, this one appears in the Mill Creek sci-fi collection. Sci-fi, why is that? It's not really a sci-fi movie. Okay, so this one's directed by B.J. Davis. Yikes. Who names her kid B.J.? Okay, actors. Brandon Lee, obviously. Ernest Borgnine, who I just... He just really doesn't appeal to me. I don't know why. And Debbie A. Monahan. Production, Turner Home Entertainment, or their distributors anyway. So release date, August 22nd, 1990. Budget, no idea. Runtime, 84 minutes. Here's a plot summary from Wikipedia. The plot concerns a mercenary named Michael Gold, Lee, who is sent to convince Dr. Braun, Borgnine, a laser specialist, to defect to the United States before the KGB 
acquire him and use both his talent and a stolen diamond to create a nuclear weapon. Dr. Braun is captured by the KGB and Gold is sent on a mission to rescue both him and the diamond. He has to enlist the help of Dr. Braun's daughter, Alyssa, Debbie A. Monaghan, whom he eventually falls for. The pair confront Colonel Kalishnikov, who's played by Graham Clark, whom they kill by hitting him with a truck in the climax of the story. So again, what I said about Wikipedia plot summaries is that it's a blessing and a curse. Like, it's great that they write stuff out so, or some some crazy person out there writes stuff out, but it's not always super reliable. Sometimes they're really poorly written, really, really wordy, um, and sometimes they're just full of crap. Like, I'm not, I'm not actually sure that they were trying to build a nuclear weapon. I think they were just trying to build a really powerful laser. Of course, I could be wrong about that. That's just from what I remember anyway. But in any case, I find it is great for things like names. Because often, I don't know the names of any of the characters in movies. So when I see them, I'm like, oh, that that yeah, that's the name. That's right. That makes sense. Like, it just realized just as I was reading this that the main character played by Brandon Lee, his name is Michael Gold. Why did you make a movie... Uh, with about a laser um, and where there's a diamond and call the main guy gold. Like it gets really confusing when you start to think about it and read it. So here are my thoughts uh, about this film. The plot, the script and acting were all bad. The video quality was very poor. The name of the film was bad. There was no laser. Ernest Borgnine was not convincing as a brilliant scientist. He seems more like the mentally deteriorating Joe Biden of scientists. I felt like this movie was um, Cold War from the American perspective. So um, communism as the boogeyman. There's evil Soviet puppet masters controlling bumbling Cubans. There's corrupt FBI and CIA doing what it takes to, quote, get the job done. Um, here's a scene where a hotel desk clerk implies that communism is holding him back from making zillions. I'll take your best room. That would be the presidential suite, 1,000 Kwanzas a night. Mm. Just be the Cuban government. When you are gone, maybe you can make some money. And then in the very next scene, there's two Cuban military personnel who are being portrayed as bumbling, subservient yes-men for the evil Soviet army guy. You say he was headed towards Luanda. See, Comrade Colonel. See, Comrade Colonel. He is a great fool. I have a job for you, too. And when it is done, I shall pluck out Mikhail Goh's eyes with my fingers. I wonder if the director or the writer of this were um, big U.S. rah-rah guys, because it's just um, their perspective is very U.S.-centric when it comes to the Cold War stuff. Okay, some other oddities with this film. 
um, Brandon Lee puts on, quote, what I'm calling Cuban face in order to disguise himself as a high-ranking Cuban soldier so that he can steal a jeep from the bumbling Cuban army. And I wonder if this is an homage to the scene in A View to a Kill, where Roger Moore, as 007, employs this technique to infiltrate and steal some documents from a Cuban airplane hangar. That's where, um, after he is captured, he's rescued again by a sexy woman driving a truck with a fake horse's ass sticking out the back. Anyways, in that scene, Roger Moore puts on Cuban face. He's a, like got this lighter shoe polish, and he um, he has this straight black mustache that he just kind of pastes on. And Brandon Lee basically does the same thing in this. It's it's pretty funny. Another oddity is um, there is a VW bus car chase scene where Brandon and his blonde accomplice, who was posing uh, as a worker at a zoo for some reason, um, where they're engaged in a running shootout with dozens of Cuban military personnel that are on foot, in jeeps, uh, in bunkers, in armored personnel carriers. They go through the entire Cuban army, it seems, um, with a Volkswagen bus and Brandon Lee hanging out the side with uh, an assault rifle. Um, it's an embarrassment. Like, why they even did this scene, I don't really know. Why would you use a VW bus? Like, it's a pretty implausible vehicle to be riding around in. It's super slow. Um, I, I don't know. There's, it just seems like, um, it's meant to mock the, the Cuban army again. I found a nice little, uh, review of Laser Mission, uh, on a website called talkfilmsociety.com. I put a link in the show notes to that review. So it's a good summary of what's going on. I also wasn't clear on how um, Brandon Lee's character, who is supposed to be American, was even allowed to be in Cuba. I didn't really think that was allowed during that time, but I just looked it up briefly online. It looks like, at least now anyway, it says Americans can legally visit Cuba only under approved categories. And the bulk of these, including family visits, educational purposes, professional conferences, and athletic competitions, come with detailed requirements. So it looks like there are some conditions where Americans can visit Cuba. I I wasn't aware. I'm not an American myself. So Next up, Showdown in Little Tokyo, 1991. So directed by Mark Lester, um, stars Dolph Lundgren. Um, he's the big star in it. And then Brandon Lee is kind of the co-star. It also has Tia Carrere in it. Um, produced, distributed by Warner Brothers. Release date, August 23rd, 1991. Budget, $8 million. Um, and apparently it made about $2.3 million at the box office. So, uh-uh. Runtime, 79 minutes. So, going to do a long plot summary here from Wikipedia. Los Angeles cop. Chris Kenner, Dolph Lundgren, is an American who was raised in Japan. He is given a new partner, Johnny Murata, Brandon Lee, an American of partial, partial Japanese descent. Kenner does not appreciate American culture, while Johnny does not like Japanese culture a lot. One thing they both enjoy are the martial arts, of which they are both experts. The two are assigned to LA's Little Tokyo 
where they break up some criminal activity in a Japanese restaurant and an arrest is made. While Kenner and Johnny are questioning the suspect, Kenner loses his temper and rips the suspect's shirt, and the tattoos that Kenner sees on the suspect remind Kenner of when he was nine years old, a time when he witnessed his parents being killed by a member of the Yakuza. The tattoos are the trademark of the Iron Claw Yakuza clan. Before Kenner and Maruta can interrogate the suspect further, he kills himself in the interrogation room by breaking his own neck. The leader of the Iron Claw clan, Yoshida, kills the owner of a popular downtown nightclub called the Bonsai Club by crushing the owner, Tanaka, Philip Tan, in a car compactor. To celebrate gaining ownership of the Bonsai Club, Yoshida throws a party at his house with all of the club staff. One of the girls at the party named Angel, Renee Griffin, hot, is revealed to have warned Tanaka about Yoshida behind his back, and this infuriates Yoshida who then questions Angel about her loyalty. She attempts to appease Yoshida by offering her body to him, but Yoshida instead drugs Angel and strips off her clothes and then fondles her from behind before beheading her. What a waste. When the coroner runs an analysis on Angel's body, it is revealed that the methamphetamines in her system, which would have led to her death anyway, um, this discovery of drugs together with the suspect having Yakuza tattoos prompts Kenner and Johnny to go to the Bonsai Club in search of information. I promise there isn't much more to this review. Then they meet lounge singer Minako Okeya, okay, Tia Carrere, who was good friends with Angel. Um, before they can get any useful information out of her, they are ambushed and taken to see the nightclub's owner, and Kenner recognizes Yoshida as the man who killed his parents. Yoshida is now a drug manufacturer using a local brewery as his distribution center. He uses smaller gangs such as the Hells Angels, Crips, and Serenos to peddle the drugs for him in return for a percentage of the profit. Kenner and Johnny escape from the nightclub later that night. Yoshida rapes and kidnaps Minako and holds her hostage in his home and vows to kill Kenner. Kenner and Johnny set out for Yoshida's heavily guarded home where they rescue Minako. His pride wounded, Yoshida sends his men out to get Minako back. He has Kenner and Johnny stripped, captured, and tortured, but Kenner and Johnny manage to escape, leading to a protracted battle in which Kenner and Johnny emerge victorious. So, uh, yeah, again, long Wikipedia plot summary, but um, it's just, yeah, there's a lot of good information there. In fact, there's a couple things I didn't realize as well um, from the plot. It's amazing. You watch the movie a couple times, but you still miss some things, you know? Anyways, um, yeah, I didn't realize the guy getting crushed in the crusher, the car crusher, was the former owner of the nightclub. I didn't really, that didn't really click with me for some reason. So here are some, here's a little bit of information that it helps put the movie and the, the poor performance in a box office into perspective. Um, so it was heavily edited by Warner Bros. Apparently they did not like the cut. Um, and the, the film actually went straight to video in most countries. So I think it was just weird circumstances. Um, it was a pretty decent movie, actually. I, I thought it was, well, just as good as a lot of other police procedurals that come out anyway. Um, you know, it was kind of fun. Uh, I, there's a, a nude scene with Tia Carrera in it, but I think it's a, I think there's a couple nude scenes actually, but I, I'm pretty sure it's a body double. I don't think it's really her. It doesn't seem like her. 
Um, Angel, played by Renee Griffin, who gets beheaded. Um, she's super, super hot. I know her from The Stoned Age, 1994, which is a fantastic film. You should go see that. It's great. Go see it. Like, as if you're going to go to the theater and see it. You should acquire a copy of that and go see it and check it out. It's very good. Um, there's a YouTube channel that I watch called Renegade Cut. I put a link in the show notes. And the guy from there did a great video on queer theory in 80s and 90s action movies. And um, this movie is a part of that video. And a lot of the things he said in it ring very true. Um, I hadn't really thought about it too much. I, I guess I saw the video before I saw the movie. So, But when I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. Anyway, it's worth checking out. It's a, short, it's a short video. It's like 15 minutes or something. So it's worth seeing. Um, it's also, it's funny to see Tia Carrere in another singing role. So let's talk a little bit about what a buddy cop film is. A buddy cop film is from Wikipedia. A buddy cop film is a film with plots involving two people of very different and conflicting personalities who are forced to work together to solve a crime and or defeat criminals, sometimes learning from each other in the process. The two are normally either police officers, cops, or secret agents, but some films that are not about two officers may still be referred to as buddy cop films. It's a subgenre of buddy films. They can be either comedies or thrillers. Frequently, although not always, the two heroes are of different ethnicity or cultures. However, regardless of ethnicity, the central difference is normally that one is, quote, wilder than the other. A hot-tempered iconoclast is paired with a more even-tempered partner. Often the wilder partner is the younger of the two, with the even-tempered partner having more patience and experience. These films sometimes also contain a variation on the good cop slash bad cop motif in which one partner is kinder and law-abiding while the other is streetwise, quote, old school, police officer who tends to break or at least bend the rules. Another frequent plot device of this genre is placing one of the partners in an unfamiliar setting, like a different city or foreign country, or role, like requiring police field work of a non-cop, a rookie, or office-bound desk jockey. In these cases, they are usually guided by the other partner. Yeah, so I read that because um, this is a buddy cop movie all the way. I mean, you have, uh, as you said before, so you got Dolph, who's a tall, handsome, athletic, white guy, uh, but he grew up in Japanese culture. And then you have uh, Brandon, who is handsome and athletic, but he's not a god, a chiseled, blonde god like Dolph. And Brandon grew up in uh, a North American lifestyle. Like he says in the movie, oh, my father's a dentist. We live in the suburbs. He, uh, you know, he went to a nice high school and stuff like that. Also, um, so there's the culture clash of the two. There is the, um, the physical, like, appearance clash of the two. One's Asian, one's white. Um... And there's also uh, the styles of the two. So 
Dolph is the more streetwise um, rule breaker. He gets the job done and all that. And it's not that Brandon is a, a rule abider, but he is more so than Dolph. So I feel a little compelled here to go through um, this movie kind of act by act with the plot points. Just talk about different things. Okay, so act one. There's a bad guy, Yakuza, and he's a ruthless killer, and he is peddling strong drugs, very strong drugs. Um, you have Dolph and Brandon, who are buddy cops. Brandon is Asian, but he grew up like a white guy. And Dolph is white, but he grew up like an Asian guy. Um, Dolph realizes in Act 1 that the Yakuza bad guy is the same guy that killed his parents when he was a child. So at that point in that scene, they sort of vow to kill each other. Um, this is the plot point at the end of Act 1. And it kind of spins the movie into a revenge quest for Dolph and for a finish the job quest for the Yakuza guy. Okay, for you. Have we met before? Last time I saw you, your face matched. I knew you would come someday. You saved me the trouble of waiting. Should have finished the job then. I'll do it for you now. Don't think so. So shortly after this, Dolph tells Brandon um, what the real deal is about his experience uh, in childhood, how his parents were killed by this guy, um, because we see it in the previous scene, but it's not spoken. So the exposition tells Brandon, and then Brandon commits to help Dolph in his revenge quest, but he wants him to keep it clean. That's a quote. He's the good cop, and Dolph is the wilder partner. So you see how Brandon is the one who wants to follow the rules to some extent, but he's going to help uh, Dolph with his quest, but he wants him to, to do it clean. All right, so we're into act two. The Yakuza guy is trying to build a drug distribution network with the black gang and the white motorcycle gang. And I guess later on the Latino gang, but um, right now I think it's just the black gang and the white motorcycle gang. It's like the stereotype gangs. It's very good. Yakuza guy is interested in Dolph's love interest, Tia Carrere. Dolph rescues her and takes her to his loft in Little Tokyo. So um, the Yakuza guy, had, had he's interested in Tia Carrere. That's it. He takes her, and she doesn't want to be there. Dolph goes and rescues her. Lots of action scenes. And he takes her to his loft in Little Tokyo. So now at the midpoint, the guy who was in charge of guarding Tia Carrere at the Yakuza guy's house, um, he allowed her to escape, obviously. Um, he is in, they're in this kind of ceremony, the Yakuza guy, a bunch of other guys, and the guy who screwed up and let her escape, and or he's taking the blame for it. And he cuts off his finger to say like, oh, you know, hey, my bad. I'll cut off my finger. Are we cool? And the Yakuza guy's like, no, no. And then he stabs him and kills him. So, um, and then the Yakuza guy says, and this is the midpoint, remember? So this is where the rest of the movie's going to go from this point. He says, bring me the head of the blonde cop. So for him now it becomes, it was always a finish the job kind of quest, but now he's locked in, he's focused. He's like, I got to kill this guy. 
So now Dolph and Brandon go to a bathhouse to arrest the Yakuza guy, and there's a big fight, and they escape. So Dolph and Brandon take Tia Carrere to Dolph's cabin in the woods. You got to see this cabin. The guy's a cop, and he's a 24-hour cop. He's always, you know, he's always working. He's in the city, but he has this beautiful cabin in the country, and it's like, there's no way. Anyways, um, but it's nice. It's a lovely little place. It's Japanese-inspired, you know? It's, well, it's totally, it's like, could be in Japan. All right, so then Dolph and Tia bang, and uh, bad guys attack. And the bad guys capture them, and they burn down the cabin. Um, so now the bad guys hook Brandon and Dolph up to racks to torture them. Um, because being bad guys, they can't just kill them. They've got to torture them first. So Brandon and Dolph escape, and then the bad guys think that they've killed them in the car crusher from the beginning. Uh, but they didn't. They weren't actually in it, so they escape. They're okay now. So Act 3, let's wrap this bad boy up. Okay, we have right at the beginning a short training montage to prepare for the final showdown. Uh, this scene kind of shows us Dolph's motivation. Uh, we get to see pictures of his now deceased parents. good Dolph is punching kicking a heavy bag and he's chopping something with a sword I think it's like this I don't even know what it, it might be wood or something and he's in his giant loft so it's um it's a really long room with lots of windows it's beautiful anybody would envy living there um, and he's got the Japanese garb on including like the the ninja uh, headband um, everything He's, oh, and at the, right at the end of the, the montage, he's, he's standing there with his robe on, and he's shirtless, and he's all ripped and muscly and sweaty. Woo! All right. So, um, okay. The next thing is, uh, so after the montage, he's ready, obviously. He's ready for the big showdown. So they go and they attack the Red Dragon Warehouse. That's where um, the drugs are stored. It's like um, a brewery, Red Dragon Beer. And they're storing the drugs in there. So there's a big shootout. Brandon faces off with the number two bad guy. And Dolph faces off with the number one bad guy in a sword fight. Um, he kills him and he gets Tia Carrere back. So that was a good film. I enjoyed that. Um, I gotta say, Dolph and Brandon, both kind of stiff on the acting side in this one, but that's okay. Like they, they're they're action roles. They did they did a great job. And Dolph, man, he looks the part when he does these kind of things. 
he is so tall and long. Um, ooh, one thing I forgot to bring up. Um, I mentioned this at the beginning, and it's in the show notes, but there's a link there to the Renegade Cut uh, YouTube video on this, and it's about um, queer theory in 80s and 90s action movies. And uh, I didn't pick up on this at all because I'm a dipshit sometimes, but um, until I watched his video. And then once you see the movie through that sort of lens, you do notice it, I think. And the idea is this, is that the, the movie essentially is is really super gay. Yeah, and all I mean by that is that there's an underlying homoeroticism to the film. Um, and that until you view it through that lens, you might not notice. So Dolph is like big and handsome and athletic and he's constantly taking his shirt off and his arms and he's ripped and he's sweating did i mention that and uh he yet brandon is through peppered throughout the the film he makes little comments um like oh i'm i'm totally straight i'm uh, i'm definitely not gay and it's it's he doesn't say that, but he says things that amount to that. Um, like there's a scene where they go into a, a sushi. You know, it's a I don't know, some kind of club and there's naked girls there. And um, he mentioned before they went in the club, he's like, I don't like fish. But then they went into the club and there was naked girls there and they were eating sushi off the naked girls. And so he said, "Whoa, we've definitely got to eat sushi off these naked girls. It's like he's saying, I'm, I'm totally really heterosexual. I'm definitely not gay. And um, there's a couple other points where he says similar sort of things. And uh, it's like he's hiding an attraction to Dolph the whole movie. And he even mentions in one scene that he he saw Dolph's dick. And that he said it was huge and I don't know. So it was, it was a weird scene, but really awkward. And um, that's the vibe it gives off. Like, like a high school guy who um, has feelings inside but he's constantly saying things to make himself look really straight um sort of had that feeling to it anyways go check out the video i'm not doing it justice at all so next movie rapid fire 1992 directed by dwight little starring brandon lee and powers booth distributed by 20th century fox Release date, August 21st, 1992. Don't know what the budget was. Made about $14 million at the box office. Runtime, 95 minutes. So let's do a little summary from YouTube. Um, the film opens in Thailand with Antonio Serrano, a mafia drug distributor, visiting longtime associate Kinman Tao, a drug kingpin. Serrano is having troubles and wants them to work together, but his request is not reciprocated. Turned off from politics after witnessing the death of his father at Tiananmen Square in China, Los Angeles art student Jake Lowe is lured to a party of Chinese pro-democracy activists. While there, he witnesses Serrano killing party sponsor Carl Chang, who was an associate of Tao. When Serrano and his men attempt to kill Jake, he swiftly disarms them using martial arts techniques. Jake is placed under protective custody by federal agents who coerce him into coming to Chicago and testifying against Serrano. When the agents at the safe house are revealed to be corrupt, 
Jake escapes through the window and encounters a young police detective named Carlo Withers, with whom he develops an immediate bond. Withers' partner, Lieutenant Mace Ryan, that's for real, helps Jake evade his pursuers and reveals that he had been pursuing Tao for 10 years. Jake is persuaded by Ryan to help him exploit Serrano's FBI ties and obtain information about Tao's next shipment. Through this sting operation, though this sting operation is successful, Jake is nearly killed in a barrage of gunfire and assaults Ryan after he reveals his involvement wasn't necessary. Later that night, Jake and Carla begin a romance and have sex in her apartment. While Ryan and his team lead a raid at uh, the revealed location of the next shipment, Tao's laundry factory, both the lovemaking and the events of the raid are shown alternately as they occur in actual time, culminating with Serrano being murdered in his cell by one of Tao's henchmen. Jake, Ryan, and Withers subsequently team up to bring down Tao once more. Though Ryan and Withers are captured by Tao's men, Jake rescues them and eventually kills Tao at a train platform. He and Carla, Withers, then evacuate Ryan from the burning factory and ride to the hospital together in an ambulance and sing Kumbaya. All right, I didn't have that last part. So not to sound like a broken record here, but again, these Wikipedia plot summaries sometimes can be a bit much. Um, In this one specifically... Uh, what's he saying? Oh, right, about them starting a relationship and having sex. Uh, and this is happening at the same time they're doing a raid. Like, why are you describing this sort of detail? Just give a plot summary, not what devices the director was using to, like, make you feel certain things when certain scenes were happening. Like, that's a bit much. All right, so I have a lot to say about this, or at least a little bit. Um, so... I want to talk a little bit about corruption and betrayal. So this movie is loaded with like the concepts of corruption and betrayal. Um, so there's a Thailand-based drug producer. That's Tao. Uh, he's working with an American-Italian mob. That's that Serrano guy to distribute drugs in America. The Italian mob guy wants more money, and he kind of starts a war with the Thailand drug producer. Now, the FBI and the cops are pursuing the Italian mob guy, the whole mob, but some FBI agents are corrupted, and they're actually working for the Italian mob as double agents. So the FBI double agents end up trying to kill the witness, Jake Long, who can put the Italian mob boss guy away. The cops discover this, and take possession of the witness uh, to protect him. They have a battle with the FBI guys, and these cops are apparently under-accountable to the regular police department since their like clubhouse, their area of operations, is a converted bowling alley, and they have been at this for 10-plus years, and they are routinely using illegal wiretaps, and they all seem to answer to Lieutenant Mace Ryan, who has squandered his personal relationships with his wife and his family through many years uh, of being a 24-hour cop. They call it 24-hour cop in pursuit of criminals in the drug trade. So this is like a, a largely unaccountable operation. Furthermore, in, in the movie, in an operation to capture the Italian mob boss, Serrano, Mace betrays Jake and recklessly puts his life in danger 
And then despite the bumbling and miscalculating of the cops, Jake, who's just a civilian, uh, is able to capture the Italian mob boss and kill several mob henchmen during the operation. So from all sides, there's corruption, betrayal, ineptitude. Um, and it's it's kind of like, well, I mean, you create this whole drug problem to begin with because you make the drugs illegal. And since they're illegal, this gives rise to the Italian mafia and the Thailand drug producer, right? And then you have the FBI and the cops going after them. You create that infrastructure and then they end up getting corrupted. And it's like, what? Well, this is a huge disaster. Here's a clip from earlier on the film when Jake is being held by the FBI. Um, sorry, he's being held by the cops, but the FBI shows up. I think this clip kind of illustrates the, the entire landscape of corruption. Great. More cops. We're FBI. I'm Special Agent Wesley. Cops in suits. There are seven bodies in the morgue, 13 in the hospital. You want to take a look at the mug books? Help us out. You know what I think? Maybe this is the guy that did it. The guy that did it needed a gun. Put that thing down. Hey, hey, take it easy. Oh, Frank. <clears throat> look in the goddamn books. He's not in the books. What makes you so sure? Look. Look! Serrano. That's who shot Chang? Friend of yours? This is our break. How about giving Jake some space? Cigarette? In 48 hours, the grand jury shuts down a three-year investigation into the Chicago branch of La Cosa Nostra, of which Antonio Serrano is the boss. Great. Keep the picture. Serrano must have taken this awful personal. I'll bet he hasn't pulled the trigger himself in 15 years. That's right. And you, my friend, were there to see it. You are a prize witness. Look, all I wanted to do was clear myself. If I'm not under arrest, then I'm going home. You'll be Sorry. under 24-hour FBI protection. Weekend in Chicago, first-class air, hotel. Class no way! You'll cooperate or I'll bury your ass in charges you can't even spell. What charges? How about assault and battery, obstruction of justice, manslaughter? What judge is gonna buy that? My judge. Think it over, Jake. You want to make the right decision here. That's blackmail. That is law enforcement. So that clip's a little confusing when you can't see it, but what's kind of happening is uh, Jake is in this interrogation room and the cops have him there and the FBI arrives and right away they're like, look at this book, see if you can identify the guy. And he's like, he's not in the book because Jake is an artist and he's, he's sketching out a picture that he has in his mind of Serrano when he saw him. So one of the FBI guys says, wait, just look at the picture, that's Serrano. And they realize, whoa, Jake saw Serrano make the kill he can now, he could be our star witness. We got to get him down to um, uh, participate in the trial and be the witness. We can put this guy away. And then they try and like uh, tell him everything's going to be cool, come down to Chicago, you know, have the weekend and all that shit. And he's like, no, no, I just want to clear my name and I'm out of here. And then what do they do? They jump in with the, well, we'll just make up a bunch of false charges and make your life a living hell if you don't cooperate with us. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? Like, um, you know, that's bribery. And then they're like, that's, 
That's criminal justice. So this clip does a good job to illustrate the underlying corruption. Hiya. Name's Ryan, Lieutenant Mace Ryan. Jake Love. So tell me, Jake, are you having a bad day or what? <laughs> the other theme that they explore in this film is that it's worth dying for something that you believe in. I read the file, Jake. Your father was doing what he thought was right, and he died. It happens every day. Deal with it. If I only could have, I was 10 feet from him when the tank, when he died. Everybody dies. But he died for something he believed in. Throughout the film, Mace Ryan bowls in the cop clubhouse. So like bowling bowls. Each time, he tries to knock over a single pin, uh, but misses. So normally, you try and knock over the 10 pins in bowling. He just has a single pin every time. It's as if he's gonna he's trying to get the uh, spare, and he's knocked over nine pins, and he's trying to get the 10th. So he's trying to get the single pin, and he misses every time. It happens a few times throughout the film. So at the beginning of Act 3, he misses again, but this time... He takes out his gun and he shoots the pin and it explodes. Now, I think this could mean that Mace is willing to embrace the corruption that's rampant, um, the corruption and rule breaking that will be necessary to achieve his final goal. Um, sort of an ends justify the means kind of thing. So this is in the context of Ryan and his crew um, packing up their clubhouse. So I think they've been taken off the assignment. Yeah, it wasn't entirely clear, but I think Mace Ryan mentioned that this was it for them. Um, so after the last screw up, I think when the, the Italian mob guy got killed, the his higher ups might have finally um, checked his power and basically said, that's enough. You guys are done. Because they were packing up the clubhouse in the background as he did this bowling thing. Um, so in the resolution of the film, in Act 3, so Ryan leads an operation with Jake and um, the lady friend. And uh, they infiltrate the laundry business where the Tao, the Thailand boss, has taken over drug distribution so this is ryan's final chance to knock over the bowling pin while he fights for what he believes in okay this is his opportunity to do that so it's his opportunity to fight and die for what he believes in um, the final operation also provides jake with a chance to redeem himself by saving mace from dying while fighting for something that he believes in. So, um, like, Jake couldn't save his father back in Tiananmen Square um, when he died fighting for something he believed in, 
but now he will have the opportunity to save Mace Ryan as he fights for something he believes in. And Mace Ryan is like a father figure to him. Yeah, so that was a good film. I liked Rapid Fire. Um, this is the first one where I kind of felt like um, that Brandon Lee was was a big star. He sort of felt like a big star. Like he acted well in this and he did the action really well. Kind of feels like he's a fully formed action star um, at this point. Like so for instance in Showdown in Little Tokyo, I really felt like he was a sidekick. And he was a lot less compelling than Dolph. Uh, but in this, he seems like the big star. Powers Booth is also there, but definitely Brandon Lee is the action star in this. He acts well. He does the action really well. He's the love interest. Like, he feels like a big star. Um, and it was a good film. So now on to The Crow. So this is his final film. The Crow was released in 1994. Although I believe they wrapped up filming sometime in 1993, or at least when they were filming, it was 1993, because this is the film, as you all probably know, where Brandon Lee was killed during production. So we'll get to that. But this film was directed by Alex Proyas, and the actors in it were Brandon Lee, Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters, and uh, Michael Wincott. Distributed by Miramax Films, release date May 13th, 1994, budget $23 million. I'm not used to uh, movies with such big budgets. I think this might be the movie with the biggest budget that I've spoken about. Um, runtime, 101 minutes. Plot summary, bear with me. This is from Wikipedia. I thought it would be excessively long, but it's, it's a bit long, but n not... Not excessive. On October 30th, Devil's Night in Detroit, Sergeant Albrecht is at the scene of a crime where Shelley Webster has been beaten and raped and her fiancé, Eric Draven, lies dead on the street after having been stabbed, shot, and thrown out of the window. The couple had planned on getting married the following day, uh, day Halloween. As he leaves for the hospital with Shelley... Albrick meets a young girl, Sarah, who says that she is their friend and that they take care of her. Albrick tells her Shelley is dying. One year later, a crow taps on the gravestone of Eric Draven. Eric awakens and climbs out of his grave. Meanwhile, a low-level street gang headed by T-Bird is setting fires in the city. Eric goes to his old apartment and finds it derelict. 
He has flashbacks of the murders, remembering those that were responsible, uh, T-Bird and his gang, Tintin, Funboy, and Skank. Eric soon discovers that any wounds he receives heal immediately. Guided by the crow, he sets out to avenge his and Shelley's murders by killing the perpetrators. The crow helps Eric locate Tintin. Eric kills him and takes his coat. He goes to the pawn shop where Tintin pawned Shelley's engagement ring. Eric forces the owner, Gideon, to return the ring and blows up the shop with gasoline letting Gideon live so that he can warn the others. Eric finds Funboy with Sarah's mother, Darla. After killing Funboy, Eric talks to Darla, making her realize that Sarah needs her to be a good mother. He visits Albrecht, explaining who he is and why he is here. Albrecht tells him what he knows about Shelley's death and that he watched as she suffered for 30 hours before dying. Eric touches Albrecht and feels the pain. Shelley felt during those hours. Sarah and her mother begin to repair their strange relationship. Sarah goes to Eric's apartment and tells him that she misses him and Shelley. Eric explains that even though they cannot be friends anymore, he still cares about her. As T-Bird and Skank stop at a convenience store to pick up supplies, Eric arrives and kidnaps T-Bird. Skank follows the pair and witnesses Eric kill T-Bird. He escapes and goes to Top Dollar, a top-level criminal who controls all the street gangs in the city. Top Dollar and his lover-slash-half-sister, Mika, have become aware of Eric's actions through various reports from witnesses. Top Dollar holds a meeting with his associates where they discuss new plans for their Devil's Night criminal activities. Eric arrives looking for Skank. A gunfight ensues, killing nearly everyone there, and Eric kills Skank. Top Dollar, Mika, and Grange, Top Dollar's dollar's right-hand man, escape. Eric, having finished his quest, returns to his grave. Sarah says goodbye to him, and he gives her Shelley's engagement ring. She is abducted by Grange, who takes her into the church where Top Dollar and Mika are waiting. Though through the crow, Eric realizes what has happened and goes to rescue her. Grange shoots the crow as it flies into the church, making Eric lose his invincibility. Mika grabs the wounded crow, intending to take its mystical power. Albrecht arrives, wanting to pay his respects to Eric, just after Eric is shot and wounded. Top Dollar grabs Sarah and climbs the bell tower as uh, as a fight ensues, and Albrecht kills Grange. The crow escapes Mika's grip claws her eyes and sends her down the bell tower to her death. When Albrecht is wounded, Eric climbs to the roof of the church on his own. There, there, Top Dollar admits ultimate responsibility for what happened to Eric and Shelley. Um, And then in their fight, Eric gives Top Dollar the 30 hours of pain he absorbed from Albrecht. The sensation sends Top Dollar over the roof of the church to his death. Sarah accompanies Albrecht to the hospital, and Eric is reunited with Shelley at their grave. So I'll say with this film, it was really good. Um, The Crow was really good. It's just not really my type of film, but it was super stylish, super stylish. I mean, and it looks like a comic book. Like, it looks like a graphic novel brought to life, which it kind of is. So that makes sense. Um, 
it's really it looks really good it's an awesome world they create his character was really good and i thought brandon lee did a amazing job acting in this one i thought this was definitely his best acting performance and the character was was scary but cool as well um so that was all really well done it's just not really my type of film it's basically like revenge porn um i mean and at the end there's like for god's sakes there the showdown is a sword fight on the roof of a church but um yeah like i say it was a really well done film um now as i said before brandon lee was killed during production so it looks like there was some sort of an accident with uh, a shooting scene where there was like a, a leftover piece of squid inside a gun barrel and he was supposed to be shot with a blank but he was actually shot in the stomach and then they took him to the hospital and he died sometime later so um i don't know that that kind of that's kind of a bummer obviously um especially if you've just watched all his movies in a row and you get to this final one and you know that he died during production and his character ironically is um someone who gets killed and then rises from the grave to avenge his own death um it's sort of creepy and it's it's kind of sad too because i liked him i got to like him i watched all his movies and and then i'm i'm like into him i like him he's good and then he dies so i didn't love that so that kind of put me off the movie a little bit but on top of that yeah it's just it's, it's not really my type of movie but wow it was well done, a good movie. Like I thought it was really moody and had a really cool style. The soundtrack is really cool. I mean, it's got Cure, Stone Temple Pilots, Nine Inch Nails, Jesus and Mary Chain, Violent Femmes, Rage Against a Machine. It's like a goddamn 90s orgasm. Um, big budget film too, 23 million, like I mentioned. That's, that's probably the biggest budget film I've ever talked about on one of my episodes. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this movie is definitely worth seeing. And I know I said he seemed like a big star after, um, like he seemed like the center of attention and like, like he was like a rising big star in rapid fire, but this, what a performance. He was really, really good. Um, I think he won some kind of like best actor award for like MTV award or something like that posthumously. I could see that. I, I mean, I could see him even being in the running for like a you know best the best actor in a lead role or something um because it was such a good performance such a cool character like i've never seen a character like that before so anyways um brandon lee that's it worth seeing all his movies except for laser mission um yeah i see that anyway it's good it's hilarious see him do cuba face um but yeah all his uh movies are fairly good. Check them out. Thank you for listening today. Check out the show notes for this episode or any episode on my website at ptpod.xyz. The show notes contain the links to all my sources and products that were referenced in the episode. You can write a glowing review of my podcast on iTunes or Google Play. There are handy dandy links in the menu on my website at ptpod.xyz. And you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash ptpod. The intro music for today's episode was Sweeter Vermouth. 
courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Check out the link in the show notes. Thank you.